0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Christian Reeve podcast. Today's guest is a retired New York police officer and author all the way from the United States. His name is Vic Ferrari. Welcome to the show, Vic. How are you doing?
1: Thank you, Christian. Thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate it.
0: No, no, the pleasure's mine. Um, Obviously, you reached out to me on Instagram, which was really cool because I I occasionally get people reach out to me, but a lot of the time I have to do a lot of like outreach myself. And I was just looking at like your career and everything and what you do, and I I just I was like, oh my god, this is such a goldmine opportunity to ask you about so many different things Um, because I can imagine as, as a police officer, you just have like stories for days and days and days and Naturally, I mean, you're literally writing about it in books, but before we get like delve into that, I wanted to kind of bring it right back to the very beginning of your career and just kind of ask you what actually motivated you to pursue a career as a police officer? Because I think it's the sort of career that's, it's not like an easy thing, especially in a major city like New York, it's going to be unsafe, it's going to be tough, it's going to require a lot of you, but what was your individual motivation for doing that?
1: Well, I grew up in the Bronx in New York City, which I was low, my family was lower middle class. Um, When I was a little boy, probably about five years old during a snowstorm, my grandfather went out to get the newspaper and broke his leg and the police brought him home. And I'm, I'm five years old and these two guys in these beautiful blue uniforms with, you know, gold buttons. And of course, every boy sees that gun. I'm looking at them and I'm like, who are these guys? Like, where'd they come from? And from then on in, uh, that's all I could think of. And there was a movie theater in my neighborhood that was right around the corner from the local police station. And every time my mother would take us to a Saturday matinee, I would run over to the police cars and look in the windows and just look at the equipment. I'd stare at the cops standing outside the police station, the way they like rested their hands on the butt of their gun and the way they interacted with each other. It's like, this is like a secret society or something. Like, this is pretty cool. Then I started watching television, and then you had um, all these cop movies and cop shows, and a lot of them were based in New York City. So I said, by by five or six years old, I knew I wanted to be a New York City police detective. And uh, my parents wanted me to go to college, and and my dad said, well, at least if you don't want to go to college, be an electrician or be a a Mm. carpenter. I, I... I would have none of it. I mean, I just, I wanted to be a cop and a detective. And um, by the time I was 21, I, you know, I went into the police Academy and then I had a wonderful 20 year career with the New York city police department.
0: How did you get your parents on side? It sounds like there was a lot of like struggle there initially. Like, I mean, obviously committing yourself to an Academy is, is going to, you know, that's, that's a big first step. Like how did you get them to kind of accept that you were going to do that and support you in that?
1: Well, they, they were supportive. They just didn't want me to put all my eggs in one basket. They wanted okay. me to hedge my bets that in the event I couldn't pass the physical, Oh <laughs> there was yeah. something wrong with me. I couldn't pass the psychological. That they, 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 Their biggest fear was what if, if I couldn't get in, would I be that devastated that it would set me back in life? So, because I was that into it. But um, like I said, my dad, I'll never forget this. The day the, um, it's a terrible tragedy. The day that the Challenger spaceship blew up, my dad came home early for work. That was about a year or two before I went to the police academy. My dad my dad never came home early from work. And I says, what are you doing home? He goes, come on, we're going. I says, where are we going? He says, um, I'm taking you out to Queens. We're going to sign you up for the, uh, the electrician's test. And I'm like, yeah, but the space shuttle blew up. He goes, I don't care about the space shuttle. He goes, you're going out to Queens. So like they were always trying to pull, not in a bad way, but they... They always wanted me to have a, something to fall back on in the event my police career didn't go off.
0: Yeah. I think, I think it's a smart move, but it's, it's tricky, isn't it? Cause it's like when you're so, you know, fixated on something that you want in life and you're so drawn to that and, and you feel almost like you are being drawn in the other direction and you know, yeah, like but you're a young
1: guy, you can't tell a young person anything. They've got to learn for themselves, right? You tell a young person something. I don't know if you have children, you seem like a pretty young guy. I mean, you wanted to do this podcast. And if someone turns around, well, you know, Christian, you really shouldn't do that part. And you're like, and then, then that becomes a slippery slope because the more somebody tells you, you can't do something, what does it do? It motivates you to go that much more forward.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm hugely stubborn. That's been the story of my life. So <laughs> anyone that says you can't do this, I'm like, Oh yeah, <laughs> try me. <laughs> it's a good way to be. Yeah, no, I agree. Cause I mean, I've I've seen how it can affect people in a negative manner. I mean, I've, I've had it in the past. I've, I've had people, I mean, for, I mean, I've told this story before, but I'll tell you since we're talking about it. Um, yeah. I, I, I have many different things that I'm pursuing in life. And, and one of those things, which I don't pursue as much anymore, but I still pursue it a little bit is music. And, but that was what I wanted to do growing up. And I hadn't really considered other things then, like, you know, my acting goals and TV goals and podcasts, like, you know, I didn't even know what podcast was at, whatever age <laughs> yeah uh, I, don't, I don't know if it even existed then but anyway <clears throat> point is i had this one goal such as similar to yourself and i was like this is what i want to do and you know i obviously i had work elsewhere and, and stuff like just a, a standard supermarket job to keep things going and whatnot when i was younger um but it just wasn't working out and i remember getting like really frustrated and, and sad about it and i asked someone who was a lot older than me? He was a retired teacher, and um, he just basically sort of <laughs> he gave me that look. Like when I told him that I was pursuing music, he looked at me like I was the, just, you know, like oh, okay, yeah, that's yeah, that's not happening. So, what do you really want to do? Kind of thing. And yeah, and,
1: it, and you read that look, and you understood completely what he was thinking.
0: Yeah, like yeah, exactly. And I, to be honest, the bigger thing about that was that it. That was a first for me to actually let my guard down and be like, oh, do you know what? Actually, I'll listen to someone for a change. And you know, to be fair, university wasn't actually immediately a success for me. Um, I didn't go straight away, but around that time, I was a bit older. I was like twenty years old or something. So I went a few years later, and um, it was a good move in the end. But it, I haven't really seen the benefits of it until years later. Like what I'm doing now is a direct right. result of that, and it weirdly it's actually helped all of the things that I'm passionate about like marketing um is just fraught in everything that I do so it's kind of ironic but it wasn't immediately like that and um my point with this anyway is that like I agree with your point I think it is important to have options um to learn other things and you know even what I do now as a sort of um the main th- the main thing that i do like i do freelance in lots of different areas but there's a main thing that i do um and I- i'm doing all sorts of stuff that i never thought i would do like sales and recruitment and i just keep looking at it like hey it's just another avenue um in case i need it you know it's just something else it's not what i want to do but it's like I don't know I grew up with this idea of always keeping your CV kind of varied and doing what you can and as many things as you can and stuff but I don't know I I think it's different when you think you have like a particular calling like with me it's more just I have a lot of different goals and I'm trying to make them all work but when you talk about your career um, and what you do it seems like it was more like a calling, like, no, it's this thing I need to do. I need to put all my efforts into this thing. And yeah, okay. Maybe that's not the best thing. You know, you shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket, but if you know it's your calling and that's what you want to do and what you see yourself as, that's what you're going to pursue at the end of the day. Absolutely. Um, so, so what kept you motivated, you know, to, to keep pursuing that despite what others, others were telling you?
1: Well, here's the thing. So I went, my family wasn't overly religious, but they sent me to Catholic high school because they felt that the public school system, I I would thrive better in a Catholic high school education. And the thing is the Catholic high school I went to was almost unknowingly was almost like um, a factory Mm. for civil servants, specifically the police department. I mean, out of a graduating class of 250 my high school, I think 40 guys, I went to high school with just my year, 40 guys became policemen. And the year before that and the year after that and, and so on and so on. So even just sending me to that high school, all my friends became cops. Like guys, I mean, entire classrooms of guys that I grew up with all, you know, some really wanted it. Some were like, oh, right, you know what? Maybe this is the career for me. Some were into it more than others. But um, yeah unknowingly that 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 actually like um strengthened it
0: excellent and um okay, i'm going to ask you like a series of questions as sure. I do in these interviews, and I guess my goal is always that I try to get a, a conversation rolling, get to know my guest, and kind of you know okay. but, but I do have a lot of sort of ideas of things I'd like to know about your experiences as a police officer and also specifically to New York as well, but let's just keep it simple for now like what were the best and worst things about being a police officer
1: the best things um looking back made a lot of friends very good friends lifelong friends i was an adrenaline still am an adrenaline junkie i mean and this is what i wanted so i mean i got into probably hundreds of car chases foot chases. I love that stuff. For me, it was like when you're a kid playing cops and robbers, well, you're really doing it. Now, don't get me wrong. When you're a police officer, there's consequences for these things. You could get really hurt. But when you're young, you're invincible and you don't really think about those things because that's going to happen to somebody else. That's not going to happen to me. Um, The worst, you see the bad side of humanity. Um, I've seen, you know, I've been in countless uh, homicide, you know, crime scenes, um, see people at their worst. I was a first responder uh, on 9-11. I was actually at Ground Zero walking around probably by about 1.30 in the afternoon. So literally for a couple of hours afterwards, I was down there wandering around with debris just falling on top of me. Um, working, working a lot of holidays when friends and family are celebrating New Year's Eve or Christmas, I'm standing down in Times Square with a bunch of drunks waiting for the ball to drop, freezing to death out there. Um, the New York City Police Department, the people there are great. The administration, not so much. I mean, yeah, ask any cop in New York about how they feel about the job candidly. They, they love their coworkers and everything else. It's the administration tends to feed on its own. It's very political. Um, you know, and maybe it has to be that way. I don't know. I'm not that smart, but um, they, they didn't treat us very well. Let's just put it that way.
0: So there's a lot of directions I can go in after what you outlined there. Um, But I I guess I, and I I was kind of going to save this for a bit later, but you know, since you've mentioned it already, I I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about 9-11, but I don't want to ask like the standard obvious questions. I want to kind of paint a picture of you personally in that moment. So how old were you when 9-11 happened?
1: So when 9-11 happened, I was... 33 or 34 years old, I had already had 12 or 13 years in with the police department. And, and I was, I, not that you can ever be ready for something like that, but right. I had the software installed, how to deal with that. And my story is, I was a detective working, my office was in the Bronx, and uh, that particular morning, I was supposed to go into Manhattan, my, my sergeant and I, I had arrested a guy for stolen cars and he was going to, to get himself out of jail, he, w- he wanted to become a confidential informant. What he was going to do was he was going to cooperate with us and give us some people that worked in Department of Motor Vehicles that were pushing out um, bad driver's licenses. So there was a meeting that morning at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, which is literally blocks away from the World Trade Center. So to get from the Bronx to Manhattan is about an hour, hour and a half ride with traffic and by the time you find parking. And uh, we had a, We should have left my office no later than 7.30, 8 o'clock. And uh, my sergeant's running late, and I can't leave without him. He comes walking into the office, you know, well after 8 o'clock. And I'm like, come on, we got to go. We're going to be late. We're going to be holding these people up. Because yeah, 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 don't worry about it. And while he's screwing around in the office, um, one of the cops from downstairs runs up and says, put the television on. A plane hit the World Trade Center. So we thought it was a small plane. Maybe a pilot had a heart attack or an aviation mistake. And, and as we're watching it, a second plane hit. So obviously we knew it was terrorism. Um, th- then the phone, call, the phone start ringing off the hook. They tell us get into uniform and stand by. And by about, like I said, probably about 1, 1.30, I was down there walking around with, you know, my office was about 120 guys. Uh, my division actually, 120 guys. Yeah, we were down there walking around.
0: How long, how long were you sort of out there on the ground with everybody? Like how long was this operation?
1: Uh, the first day on nine I was down there for about one, one 30 in the afternoon. And we left, I remember specifically, we left probably about five 30, 6 o'clock in the morning and they told us, okay, here's the deal. Be back tonight at five 30 at night. So literally I ran, I lived up in the Bronx at the time. So I drove up to the Bronx threw all my clothes in the washing machine. Um, you know, try to get as much sleep as I can. But then I come home, my answer machine is blinking off the hook, you know, because the cell phones went down. So everybody was calling my landline to see if I was okay. And what was it like down there? And, you know, my father was basically the second I came home, my father's banging on the door. I was like parked outside almost. So, cause he wanted to know what happened to me. So um, yeah. And then for the next couple of days, we were going down there in 12 and 14 hour shifts. And then they pulled us back and then, because I worked in auto theft, what, there was so much debris down there. What they had to do is they had to open up an abandoned landfill in Staten Island that had been closed for decades. And then they started with heavy equipment, um, taking all the debris from the trade center and cars and bringing it out to this dump out in Staten Island and then going through the debris. So since I worked in auto theft, they were using us to like cut open the cars that had gotten crushed to see if there were people in there, you know, so, and, and sort through debris and, you know, a, a litany of things we had to do to, out there, but that went on for months.
0: Mm. I really appreciate you sharing this, by the way. I, I know it's, I know it's not an easy thing to talk about, but um, I, I think the reason yeah. I find it so fascinating is because it's something, the moments like these, things like these don't happen very often you know these kind of major events like awful things happen every single day don't get me wrong but something like that where it's so outlandish and out there and everything like it that was one of the things I remember thinking like what was it like for the people on the ground like obviously I I know know, it's been well documented what it looked like for firefighters etc but like Given that I imagine you would have had to do things like crowd control and uh, as you said, like looking for bodies and, and all these different things. But was there anything else like strange that you were asked to do or strange instruction or like what, how, how much did your life kind of change as far as the day to day in that period?
1: well th- there was nothing there was no crowd control like it okay. lower manhattan was a ghost town it was like something out of a movie like a zombie apocalypse i mean All we're right. walking around there's pieces of paper and dust just raining down on us and the sunlight was having difficulties yeah i mean it was one o'clock 1 30 in the afternoon and the closer you got to the trade center it was like the sun was like having a difficult time it's like when, when they say like when a volcano erupts and the sunlight can't get through the particles, was something like that. Um, The one thing I will never forget, we were coming down, I think, Broadway, making our way to the Trade Center, and everything is covered in that volcanic dust. I mean, that just asbestos or whatever it was, fireproofing or just the building being pulverized. All you saw on the ground were thousands upon thousands of women's high heel shoes. Because all those women that worked in the financial district when they were fleeing, not just the trade center, but the buildings surrounding took their shoes off because they couldn't run in high heel shoes. Right. So they just threw their shoes and ran barefoot the hell out of there. So you we know, were like, holy, you know, like, look at all these shoes. Like you just, I mean, they were everywhere. So I'll never forget that. I remember there was a guy, in like a space suit who just happened to walk by us with like a Geiger counter. I don't know if he was with the government, the military, or some guy that had a Geiger counter that was waiting for the day <laughs> to, to, to show up. It, there was just a lot of crazy, it was it was all hands on deck. Um, we really didn't know what to do. The second night when we got down there it was a little more organized, but what here's what's funny. So like probably by the third or fourth day, we had so many people showing up to help like different law enforcement agency. I mean, literally four or five blocks from ground zero, there was a camper from Chicago, like a bunch of cops from Chicago jumped in a camper, a Winnebago and drove down there like, how the fuck did they get down here so fast? Like they must've been going hundred miles an hour. And it was funny because like there were just, just like the bizarre things, Like, you're walking down there, like, a day or two after, and there's cars that are covered in that ash, and people wrote, like, obviously, cops or firemen wrote in the ash on the cars, like, fuck you, Bin Laden. It was just things like that would make you laugh. You know what I mean? It's like, you're down there, and it's like, oh, God, I got to do this again. And then you'd see something like that, and it would make you laugh. You know what I mean? It was – it was – it was a crazy time. It really was like, you know, it's funny, you watch like a documentary and you see these poor guys that were in Vietnam. And not mm. that I'm trying to say anything I did was anything like somebody trapped in a jungle fighting. Not at all. But just you, it, it's just like, there was so uncertainty with everything. It was like, are they, is another plane gonna hit? Like for a while you would look up and if you saw a plane go by, like you get nervous because is this over? So it was, um, it was definitely, you were living moment to moment for a while
0: how did you kind of keep spirits up obviously you gave an example there of, of like you know you would use humor yeah humor is such a big part of especially as a coping mechanism when when we're dealing with traumatic experiences but like given as you laid out there you know it's a, it's a tense time um, obviously we know how things change with regards to air travel and stuff like that but like how did you sort of navigate that day-to-day like how how did you kind of keep yourself going and, and you, you know, the people in your department?
1: Well, the thing is when you work for the New York city police department, your time is not your own. No two days are ever the same. And you can plan your week or your day any way you want. I mean, I can tell you stories about, I was like, okay, I, I'm going, I got tickets for a show and I'm going to do this. And then tomorrow I'm off and something happens and you don't go home for days. So, yeah. By the time that happened, you just you're adaptable. You, you it's oh, okay. You know what I mean. You're the, you, you're you, you're trained. It's just you know it's like nothing else matters for a while. This is what I have to do. It is actually and, and, and the thing the thing is like it that not just nine eleven but like the police department and that ability that I have this insurmountable task in front of me. You know what? No one's going to help me or. I got to get through this. I just have to grind through this. This is just something I'm going to have to do. You know, it's whether it's a project around the house and removing popcorn ceiling and your friends tell you you're crazy. You know how many days that's going to take. And it's like, <laughs> are you kidding me? That, that's nothing. I'll just, It's going to suck. It's really going to suck for a couple of days, but I'm going to bl- I'm going to push through this. So by the time nine 11 happened, most guys, if I mean, at least with the guys that I worked with and the guys that I know it's like, no one had a nervous breakdown, or I'm sure there are people that that did have problems as a result of that. Absolutely. But the people I was with, and I was around, it's like, yeah, this really sucks. And you know, we were like kids amongst ourselves talking about it and wondering, you know, the uncertainty of life and stuff. But at the same time, it's like we had a job to do. So we might as well just get this over with.
0: Yeah, no, I I mean, I I think it speaks to a lot to yourself and, and, and what you guys do and, and did because at the end of the day, you know, you, you've got choices, haven't you? You can choose to kind of sit and absorb it and, and let it get to you or you can just keep going and then, ju- yeah, yeah just use that as the coping mechanism. But I, I do want to ask you one thing. Oh, though: Was there sure. a point when, as you said, because it wasn't like you were you were doing some things were, were taking months as you mentioned like the debris thing was something mm-hmm. that was an operation that took longer but inevitably you know there is crime every day lots of things going on in New York so eventually you would have been doing other things yeah. so when you sort of got away from that was there a moment where you were able to decompress that or were you just plowing on as usual and just you know getting on Plow, with
1: plowing on as usual I mean because it's New York. It's it's it, it New York never stops. Like and New York City Police Department at any given time has between thirty-five thousand and forty thousand members. So I'll give them credit with this. They didn't want to burn us out. Right. So they were rotating us in and out. Sometimes you'd be out of there, you'd be going back to your office working on cases for a week or two, and then they'd bring you in for a day or two. So they were, you know, I mean, after they they figured it out and how they were going to do everything and go through the debris and they, they, they started pulling us back and, you know, basically phasing us back into our cases because the reality is crime never stops. New York never stopped. So they pulled us back and we just started going about our business.
0: Did you actually see an increase in crime around that time? Because I would have thought that maybe some... Decrease. criminals, Right. I would have thought people would take advantage of the situation. Oh. And...
1: No, it was a decrease, especially, I mean, okay. I worked in the Bronx, which is an outer borough, which... Bronx and Brooklyn are probably, as far as in crime, the highest. And no, there was a decrease because everybody basically stayed in. You know what I mean? Everybody everybody was glued to the news. Right. I mean, even the bad guys take a break sometimes. You know what I mean? Like we used to <laughs> yeah. say, you know, we would do a case. We would do a case like, you know, tailing car thieves at night. You know what I mean? And we'd have like a tracking device in a car thieves car. And my lieutenant would say, it's two, three o'clock in the morning. He goes, he's going to bed. Because at some point they got to take a break you know what i mean And it's true criminals don't work bankers hours but at the same time even they got to get some sleep and they were fascinated what was going on so yeah crime crime took a break Don't so, were there guys that 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 said took this is a great opportunity yeah sure there were but uh, as a whole though i i'm absolutely positive from what i saw crime was down that's
0: incredible yeah no i mean it, it, makes, it makes perfect logical sense. But I also thought maybe the, the reverse would be true and that maybe people might see a window to like, oh, well, the police are not paying attention. I can get away with this. But yeah, I, I guess to be fair, that would have been a point where every New Yorker would have been just on edge for a little bit, not knowing what comes next. And speaking of which, um, one final sort of question, just on the 9-11 sure. stuff. Yeah. I, I wanted to kind of know how that changed your career as a cop moving forward because as i mentioned earlier you know it affected air travel forever it changed a lot of things around the world including here in the uk um but in terms of your work and what you did like were there any new measures that came into place as a result of that or were they there used any- just
1: a little yeah they used just a little differently so uh, so i worked in the auto crime division the auto crime division was under what's called the OCCB, Organized Crime Control Division. And they used to call OCCB Other Commands Can Borrow, meaning you'd come into work one day thinking you're going to go after car thieves and they'd say, ah, put on your uniform. And what they would use us for is a couple of times a month, they'd have us at the subway system, you know, like looking for suspicious people with bags. Um, they they would, they would throw us into these security things like Penn Station or Grand Central Station, or there was a tunnel that ran between Queens and Brooklyn, a subway that they were always afraid that God forbid that got hit. So they would have a couple of cops at each end of that tunnel. So they were using us more for security measures for a while. And then eventually, you know, once they created or boosted, um, homeland security, then, then we got pulled it back from that.
0: Thank you very much for sharing. I really appreciate yeah, no it. Um, one of the things you mentioned in that though was a little bit humorous when you were talking about, you know, criminals getting tired, which is just a thing that I've never really thought about. Um, were there any like funny arrests you made? Like, I don't know, you get a guy when he's on the toilet or sleeping or something and you arrest him, like what are the sort oh, of funniest yeah. arrests you had? You
1: want to hear funny stories about people I've arrested. I've got so many. <laughs> um, I've had repeat customers, I've had, um, oh God, I I wasn't expecting that question. Um, All right, I'll tell you a quick story. So one day my partner and I are driving around the Bronx and um, we go through a Home Depot parking lot. Do you know what Home Depot is? The Home Improvements?
0: Yep. Mm -hmm.
1: It's a big home improvement chain here in the state. It's, it's It's in August. It's about to rain. It's a muggy day. And we're just cruising through this parking lot in an unmarked car. Look, it's a regular Ford Taurus. And I see this late model Dodge Caravan with the windows rolled down. Nobody in the Bronx leaves their car with their windows rolled down in a shopping center. So I'm in the back seat and I tell the guy in front, I go, there was three of us in a car. I go, run that plate. Plate comes back stolen. So we come around, we're going to set up on it and jump on the guy once he gets in the car. Well, sure enough, the guy's already in the car and he's pulling out of the parking lot. So in the NYPD, they don't want you getting into car chases. We still do it, but they don't want us doing it. So what you try to do is you try to follow a guy at distance, and either you a wait till he gets stuck in traffic, and then you like tap his bumper, and while he's blocked in, you jump out and pull him out of the car. Or what you do is you put it over the radio, and you kind of try to herd him in. Right. So we're at a light that's just you have it. We're at a traffic light, and then right past the traffic light is the on ramp to to a major highway. And I'm like, well, we can't block him in. There's nobody in front of him. So we're going to have to follow him for a while, see where he goes. Well, the guy looks up into the into his rearview mirror. He sees three white guys in a Ford Taurus in back of him, and he slams on the gas. <laughs> he makes us. So we start chasing him. He's ramming cars on the highway like shit. Let him go. So I was pissed. I was fucking pissed. And I told my partner, I'm going to fucking get him. He goes, yeah, he goes, he's gone. Don't worry about that. So I went back to our office. I pulled the theft report and the car was stolen a week before in the same neighborhood
0: Hmm.
1: there's only a couple of types of people that will steal a car and hold on to it for more than a couple of days and that's children you know teenagers they steal a car and they drive it they joyriding they'll drive it until the wheels fall off or a drug addict the drug addict will steal a car and they use it to commit other crimes they use it to, to buy drugs they use it you know, if they're homeless, they're going to park in a. They'll, they'll go buy some heroin. They'll park in a park somewhere, and they'll shoot up and fall fall asleep in the car. It, it becomes like their, their 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 house. So I knew this guy stole a car a week before. He's still holding on to it. I did a summons check, and I saw that the car was getting parking tickets around this housing project. So what I did was I went next door to the guys in Vice, and I said, "Can I borrow one of your eight cylinder cars?" <laughs> My partner's like, "You're out of your mind. We're not going to find this guy." We borrow an eight-cylinder car. We go back to the neighborhood. Five minutes later, who comes fucking driving by but my friend? I said, see, I told you. So now we're following him again, right? We're following him around the Bronx, right? But this time, we're really laying back, and we're in a different car. So he goes into a gas station. The attendant comes over, opens up the tank, and sticks in the thing. We roll up in back of him. The son of a bitch looks in the mirror again and slant and takes off, but the, um, the nozzle... And the hose was still in the car. So if you <laughs> fans out there that are listening, if you ever wondered what would happen, that fucking nozzle stretched. And then when it shot out of that car, you heard it, kaboom, that metal, If that metal nozzle would have hit somebody, would have taken your fucking head off. So anyway, the car takes off. We're chasing this guy around the Bronx. He mounts the sidewalk and he gets pinched between a fence and a lamppost that's got a metal box on it that controls the traffic light, and that comes through the passenger side of the Dodge Caravan and shears. Like, half. if someone was in the passenger seat, it would have cut their head off. It just, like, sheared a section of the car off. He jumps out of the car. He knows we're putting his description over the radio, so he's taking his clothes off. He's taking his shirt off. He's take, you know, he's taking his hat. The hat's coming off. The shirt's coming off. I'm jumping fences chasing him. My partner comes around the block, we tackle them, We get him in cuffs. And I'm looking at him. And I go, you, I go, you son of a bitch. I says, I, I, I says, I, I know you. I know you. And he goes, you never arrested me before. And I go, yeah, I did. I said, I arrested you in a Buick about three years ago with your family in the car. And he goes, he turns to my partner, he goes, your partner's got a really good memory. And we sent him back upstate for a couple of years. So like I said, we used to have every now and then repeat customers. Although, I mean, I've locked up hundreds, hundreds of car thieves and I've had a couple of repeat customers from time to time, you know, not that I even knew it was them, you know, like this guy. Had I known it was him, I would have known exactly where to look for him, you know, all I saw was the top of his head
0: through a mirror. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. Yeah, no problem. What's the, um, on this just theme of just humorous criminals, what's the like stupidest thing you've ever seen a criminal say or, or do, or the you just looked at them, like, why would you do that?
1: All right, so in the early 90s, my partner and I were in uniform, we're driving around, and I see two airbags had just started with cars. It was the early 90s, so the newer, nicer cars were having airbags in them, right? So these two guys drive by us, and they have a temporary plate, piece of cardboard that's hanging off the back, and the airbags are missing, The passenger airbags missed. It's just so obvious. It's just two holes in their fucking dashboard. And they drive by and they go into a McDonald's drive-thru. So it's a temporary plate, so you can't run it in the computer. And I go, there's no front end damage to the car. So someone took the airbags out of the car, right? So we pull them over and the guy goes, he hands me like this paperwork that looks like bullshit. And I go, what is this? He goes, oh, it's a 96 hour permit. I says a ninety. I go. Where did you get that number from? He goes. No, 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 no. In North Carolina or South Carolina, I forget. He goes. They give you. He goes. It's like a test drive. I go. So a car dealership gave you ninety six hours to test drive a car. He goes. Yeah. I go. Do they know that you just drove eight hundred miles to the Bronx? Like a test drive. The way I was schooled, is a test drive is around the block. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Not ninety six hours, and you go up to the Bronx. And oh, by the way where are your airbags he goes i don't know he goes when when they let us use the car there were no airbags in it so my part this is before cell phones we took the keys from them my partner watched them i went into mcdonald's i asked the manager i go can i use your phone i i call up this dealership and 800 miles away and i go listen i says i got these two clowns up in the bronx with this car so i gave him the vehicle identification number i says can you do a lot check this guy goes, yeah, that car's supposed to be on the lot. I go, do you give a 96-hour permit? He goes, no, I never even fucking heard of such a thing. So I said, okay. So we went on a the block. They sold the airbags. They, somehow they got their hands on the keys of the car and a permit. They printed up this bullshit paperwork. They sold the airbags. They're just driving around the Bronx having a party with the car. <laughs>
0: It's 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 the complacency that always gets me, like the the little details that you forget. And don't get me wrong, like I'm I'm not saying that like when you steal these things or you do these things, it's like there's a criminal mastermind at work here. Like obviously you just forget, things especially if you're younger and ignorant of these things. But little things like that, where they like make something up, or like, I, I guess maybe they just felt nervous, so they just came up with a random story, and it's just like,
1: no, I think the story worked for them. I think I, there's no doubt in my mind they got pulled over before.
0: And that story uh, worked. Okay. Fair, fair play, fair play. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what were um, maybe some of your, sometimes I call it the finest hour, what were your kind of more memorable moments as a police officer where you, maybe you went through a particularly challenging moment or where you sort of came out from the other end and you were like, you know what? This is my best day as a police officer.
1: Oh, I worked on so many interesting cases. And a lot of the cases I worked with started off with auto theft, and then ultimately it would turn into homicides. Right. A lot of these guys, I worked on a case. Um, we had a couple of Chinese, this is in 99, 2000. We had Chinese nationals that basically what they were doing was they were, st- they, they, they set up a warehouse in Brooklyn and they were paying our car thieves, $5,000 a car. And our thieves were stealing up to 30 cars a month. They were going out to Brooklyn. These cars were put in shipping containers. The shipping containers would get driven out to, to New Jersey. They were put on a train. They were railed out to Long Beach, California. And then these stolen cars, they were put in between three and four stolen Audis per car. What they would do is they put two Audis, two stolen Audis in the bottom of the, of the shipping container. They'd let the air out of the tires so the car would sit lower. Then what they would do is they would build a frame, a wood frame, and then drive two more cars in so they could maximize, get three, four cars per container. Then the cars were shipped out to the Pacific Rim and were going to Shanghai. So we had wiretaps going on the Chinese nationals. We had wiretaps going on the middleman who was a Jamaican that was getting paid $5,000 per car. He was farming out to different steel teams. And he was paying $500 per fee. So he was making about $4,500 per car. So once we went up on the phones, we were on wiretaps. Then we start hearing about these guys talking about murders. So like, holy shit, this is getting good. Like, you know, it was good enough that we had, you know, Asians shipping cars out of the country. Now we got guys in the murder for hire business. And these guys were doing everything. They were were hitting dealerships over the weekend, taking 10, 15 cars, they did a commercial burglary at a Harley Davidson motor shop in Vig- uh, a motorcycle shop in Virginia. They hit, hit them for one, one weekend for like $100,000 worth of stuff. I mean, these guys were big time. And when it all came down, the one of the main thieves, who was like an expert driver and car thief, he was the getaway driver on one of these trigger men's multiple homicides. So we got involved in that. And then... Should I keep going with this story? Yeah, please, please, yeah. So one of the homicides, one of the homicides was 10 years before we're doing this case, you got three guys, and again, I'm kind of paraphrasing, and you know, this might not be 100% accurate. This is almost 30 years ago. But from what I remember, you had three guys robbing banks up in Connecticut. One guy gets caught and doesn't rat on his friends. He goes away and does some time. Well, the friends with the money they were making from the bank robberies go into the drug business, and they're the guys to see in Connecticut if you want a kilo of coke or heroin or whatever. This guy gets out of jail, and he goes to his friends and says, hey, equal partners. I kept my mouth shut. So these two guys were treating him like a lackey. Go kill this guy. Go pick up a kilo. Go beat this guy up. This guy wasn't having it. He was upset. So he kidnapped one of their couriers and put him in the trunk of his car for a weekend, um, beat him half to death, took his kilos and sent him back to the other two guys and said, I'm not fucking around. I want what's mine. So now these guys are like, well, he's got to go. So what they did was they farmed out. They got in touch with our car thieves and uh, a plan was hatched where a couple of them went up to Connecticut. They had a motorcycle. They followed this guy around. When the guy stopped at a light, the guy on the back of the motorcycle shot him with a Glock like 14 times, cut him into Swiss cheese. They took off. They put the motorcycle into a U-Haul truck, closed the U-Haul truck, brought um, the motorcycle down to the Bronx. And I don't remember if they chopped up the motorcycle or they kept using it. Again, this is 30 years ago. But um, yeah, we solved that homicide and a lot more. I mean, the... the, 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 um, The killer i mean he was a little spanish guy he was like five five and 130 pounds soaking wet i mean this guy could fill a graveyard like he like we knew of about 13 homicides i think we ultimately got him convicted on four or five but we knew of about 13 we were pretty sure we could connect him to we probably did way more than that
0: thank you so much for sharing the story i appreciate it um so during your time obviously you mentioned that you work with other departments and stuff like that and you started with auto theft uh did you work in a lot of different departments then because i know sometimes obviously you have to kind of um work a lot. With other departments yeah well yeah, yeah i'm just kind of i'm just kind of wondering what your journey looked like as far yeah, as yeah. so like, did when you... I was a
1: rookie yeah yeah when i was a rookie cop brand new out of the academy they put you in field training Right. Um, I did that for six months. Then I went to a police station. If, if for your listeners out there, there's a movie. It was a big movie in the United States in, in the eighties. It's called Fort Apache, the Bronx. It's with Paul Newman. And um, they filmed that in my station house. So I worked in the South Bronx in the uh, mid eighties and the South Bronx was all burnt out abandoned buildings. And I remember like walking around on, on a foot post, like what am I even supposed to do out here? There's like crackheads walking about around selling shit, really wasn't it was just like a terrible terrible neighborhood to work and um from there i got thrown into a dwi unit uh, arresting drunk drivers which i absolutely hated Mm. um from there i went into plain clothes so it was um pickpockets robberies in praga it's not undercover it's more you're in you're in plain clothes and you're just going around high crime areas and you jump out when you see something but I always, I was always picking off stolen cars. I just, I grew up in a neighborhood where people used to steal cars. I knew what to look with, with stolen cars. So I gravitated towards that. I also worked in narcotics for about a year and a half, um, doing buy and bust operations. A couple of times I bought narcotics, nothing on major run to cover, just street level stuff. Like just walking up to a guy in the street and buying a couple of bottles of crack. And, uh, then in my last 10 years, I was a detective in the auto crime division.
0: Wow. And so w- when you were kind of transitioning from, from each department, was, was there a lot of crossover work as far as like, you know, if you say you're in auto theft and then there's, you, you understand there's a homicide going on, like you, you said then that you're, you're really pushing it to the end and making sure they get convicted and stuff like that. And so it's not a situation where it's just like you hand it over to the homicide team and they deal with it. It's like you still have some active involvement and there's like collaboration, I guess. Is that right?
1: Well, yeah. See, like we're, all right. So like we're we're doing a case on Carthies, right? And then we start hearing rumblings on the phone. They're making references to homicides. Like it came up on the phone, I think, I think something about you want to wind up like that guy in Connecticut. We're like, huh, that, Uh, that doesn't sound right. So then one of the detectives starts calling up different you know you got anything with you know homicides and motorcycles and uh, yeah actually we do and then so but the way we were stumbling upon homicides these homicides had already taken place months sometimes years ago it's not like you know you you're responding to a hot you know there's a body there you know what i mean so we're coming in late we're gathering information we're trying to we're trying to get this thing you know And then once we think we have, we don't want to send the homicide detectives on a wild goose chase. So you try to gather as much information as you can, and then we'll bring on a homicide team or, you know, it depends on what we're working on. You know, someone that's got more expertise than us in a certain field, you know what I mean? So the homicide, you know, what would happen is once we grab these guys for the car theft, then we start pinning the homicide charges on it. It's the same as what the FBI does with the mafia. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they suspect this guy did this homicide. But when they scoop up his whole team, someone's going to talk. You know, at some point, someone's going to say, shit, I don't want to do 10 years. But I do know that he killed somebody, which is going to get me out of my 10 years and get him 100 years. You know what I mean?
0: Speaking of mafia, um, I just wondered what your opinion was on you know television shows like The Sopranos, etc. That, and and also because you mentioned earlier, you know some of the media was good, like what you grew up with, like it made you maybe want to be a cop and etc. Yeah. But obviously, these things tend to glamorize these things, and it's not always exactly how it seems but what would you make of these these sorts of shows that a depict criminals and criminal life and also that depict cop and being cops like was it positive negative for you in well your cops perception? are like children
1: cops are like children so when the sopranos hit it, it was the funniest thing at my office every monday morning for like an hour that's all we talked about oh, all really? right so we did a lot of mafia cases because out in brooklyn um, that's the mob. That was a huge moneymaker for the mob was stolen cars, stolen parts, insurance fraud, making cars disappear. Um, sometimes making people disappear. So we did a lot of mafia cases. So in this, around the time the Sopranos moved around, like there's a lot of truth to the Sopranos, but look, they got to sum it up in an hour. Mm. You know what I mean? To show exactly how it would work would take a week. Like, all right. So in real life. Tony Soprano, even before he became boss, he was a captain. He wouldn't be getting his hands dirty on a lot of things. Tony Soprano wouldn't be talking to as many guys as he did. The whole thing in the mob is the more people you're dealing with, the, the more vulnerable you are to law enforcement because someone could be a rat. So those guys tend to insulate, you know, if someone walked up to Tony and starts talking business, he'd go, He'd either smack the guy in the mouth or tell him, get the hell out of here. You know what I mean? Like, we did a case There was a mobster that was, um, that was uh, into everything. He also had a scrap metal processor. And um, we had this guy, like hook, line, and sinker. We had, we, we, what my queen's office did was, this guy ran an entire neighborhood. Like, you couldn't open up a body shop or a junkyard in a neighborhood Or this guy was going to land on you and tell you how it was. So what we did was we rented out commercial space and we set up a junkyard. And we thought he was going to send one of his underlings in there to smack around our undercover detectives. Well, he shows up, which we couldn't believe. The target shows up. Don't you guys know who I am? You can't. I'll burn this place to the ground. So we said, okay, what can we do? what, What can we do? So we start paying this guy off. He's involving us in all these scams. We got him. The FBI finds out. The FBI comes to us and says, hey, we want to be a part of this. And well, not me. This wasn't my case, but I'm I'm like a bit player. I was in another office, but I got involved in it later on. So I think the the Queens District Attorney's Office and our office told the FBI, we we don't need a partner. We're, We're going to take this case down in a month. So what does the FBI do? They leak a story that they're going after this guy for tax evasion. So now this guy is like, someone's talking. So what does he do? He starts rounding up all his underlings and smacking them around. You had better not fucking talk. But the funny story with this is he brought in a couple of guys that he thought could be weak that might not hold up to the scrutiny. And he told them to show up to his scrap metal processor. They went into his trailer while he was smacking them around and reading them the riot act. He had their cars crushed. So, after he gave them a beat and they came outside, their cars were cubes of metal. So, while they were inside getting yelled at, he took, he had their cars picked up with heavy equipment and crushed into cubes. So, you showed up in a 2000 Mercedes and you come back and it's a fucking, it's a cube of metal. It's a 4000 piece of metal. So, he got his point across, but he still went to jail
0: what what's the reality with with informants because obviously um that was something that was obviously depicted in in quite quite a lot in the sopranos and um it's just an interesting concept but i wondered is there any misconceptions about um the realities of informants and how they work and and also how do you actually ensure the safety of an informant like and and protect them from actually getting hurt
1: well there's a couple of different there's a couple of types of informants right so the rarest, like a, like a unicorn is John Q citizen. That's had enough. Right. He's either, he, he sees something going on at work or his next door neighbor is a scumbag or his brother-in-law is doing something God awful. And you know, there's nothing to hold over his head. He's just doing it. And he comes and says, look, something terrible is going on. I want to help. They're rare. It's like, it's like Haley's comet passing through most informants is a guy or a woman that's gotten their hand caught in a cookie jar and they don't want to go to jail. So there's two types of ways to go with that. So one is it's for, it's called court consideration, meaning um, they're going to cooperate. And if what they give up is sufficient, the judge or the district attorney prosecuting the case is going to tell the judge, yes, he was arrested for this, but we would like no jail time. Or we would like him to be put on probation or we would like him to go into the witness protection program. Um, there's other, we worked with a guy that started off as, um, we, he started off as he got his hand caught in the cookie jar. This guy gave up so much stuff. I could tell you so many, there's a whole chapter about this guy in the book. We used to call him the weatherman because he could just tell you what the weather was going to be. He gave us Mike Tyson's stolen motorcycle. But anyway, um, this guy, anyway, he started off as, got his hand caught in a cookie jar. And for a year or two, he gave us a ton of information. And then when it was over, he liked us. And he kept calling us. So then what you have, he actually became, like he gets put on a payroll. So, you know. Hey, what? Yeah. So basically, <laughs> yeah, they get paid. Yeah, some informants get paid okay so you know he would give something up and you know I you know I don't when I was in narcotics I forget this is so long ago I mean I was in narcotics in the early 90s you're talking 30 years ago but I think the undercovers got paid something like a thousand a kilo like you know what I mean for every kilo they gave you know that, that, that you know their handler recovered so but it's a slippery slope because you know you lay down with fleas you're gonna get bit and inevitably, you know, you, you're talking about people that, that that delve into the, you know, the outskirts of society. You know what I mean? And they take a shortcut and they get involved in something or the people they're with figure them out. You know what I mean? After a while, you know, this is the only guy that never gets arrested. He's the only one the cops aren't banging on his door. You know what I mean? Like this guy I was just telling you about, right? He calls us up one. Uh, oh, I, I could tell you so many stories about this guy. He calls us up one day and he says, "Um, I was with Horatio. This guy, Horatio, was like this big time car thief, a Dominican kid. He goes, I was with Horatio. We're going down the West Side Highway. Horatio wants to check out some Hondas. So he, I know what he's saying. He's saying they were going to go steal a Honda, but he's just now he's like trying to like change the story. Like, yeah, Horatio just wanted to look at Hondas. Right. Right. And and you oblige. So we're going down the West Side Highway and we see Mike Tyson on a Ducati which is at the time, like a $35,000 motorcycle. He goes, so Horatio follows him to the Javits center, which is a convention center in Manhattan where they have the car show and different trade shows. He goes, we couldn't believe it. Tyson left his Ducati parked on the street and he went into the Javits center. He goes, Horatio jumped on the bike, cracked the ignition and stole it. I go, great. Where's the bike? He goes, it's in Horatio's apartment. Horatio lived in a ground floor apartment. If you've been, I know your your listener is going to say, "Well, how could someone drive a stolen motorcycle into an apartment?" Go Google what Washington Heights like looks like, and you'll understand what I'm talking about. So he drives he drives the stolen motorcycle into his apartment. He's got it sitting there. He says, "Give me the apartment number. We're going to get a search warrant. We'll go kick down his fucking door. We'll get Mike Tyson Ducati." So our informant tells us, "No, no, no. Wait." He goes, "He's got a couple of stolen motorcycles in his apartment." He goes, "He's going to ship them to the Dominican Republic." He goes, when he's going to ship those bikes, he goes, I'll get you the shipping container and you can pick off the shipping container before it leaves the country, which we used to do this many, many times. So I said, okay, great. So I forgot about it. About a month later, I'll never forget, it's Sunday. I'm watching football. My partner calls me up. He goes, you want to make overtime? I says, for what? He goes, remember all those stolen motorcycles Horatio's got? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, they're leaving the country. I go, well, we can pick off the shipping container tomorrow he goes they're not he goes they're they're not shipping them by sea he goes they're getting airlifted they're going air freight at a kennedy airport so literally they stole a van they loaded this van with all these they took the motorcycles and they took them apart and bubble wrapped them and put them in crates and then they were going to ship the stolen motorcycles out of kennedy airport on a sunday night so we're waiting at Kennedy Airport and they come riding up in a stolen van with all these stolen motorcycles in it. And we picked them off. So, oh, this guy used to give us so much stuff. One time, one time, um, we were driving, i never forget, we we're driving around and he called, we were in the Bronx and he calls us up and he goes, You guys want to make some overtime? Well, this is our informant talking to us like this. I go, <laughs> Dude, you got to stop talking like us. Because he, he started picking up our lingo. And I yeah. go, Dude, you're going you're gonna to sound like a cop. Yeah. So he goes, he goes, they just loaded four kilos, four or five, I forget, five. We just they, just, they, he was there. They just loaded five kilos in a Ford Astro van. You know, like on like a minivan, you got the, um, the side door that slides open. You know, there's like that step you take to get in. Well, these guys built a secret compartment in the step. He goes, they just loaded five kilos in the step. He goes, the car's got Rhode Island plates. He goes, the guy's going to Rhode Island. He goes, be careful, he says, because there's one driver with the kilos, he said, but there's a crash car. So when you guys go to pull him over, he goes, a he goes, crash car's going to hit the back of your car or try to distract you. He said, all right, well, we'll distract them. So what happened was we go up to the heights. The crash car, <laughs> the crash car was morons. They got on the highway. <laughs> we saw them. The crash car got on the highway. We cut off the other car, right? And the guy is just sweating. I go, how you doing? Everything all right? He just sweats pouring off his. And it was a spring loaded trap. If memory serves me correctly, because some of those things are on hydraulics with pistons. If memory served me correctly, it was, you know, like the old cars, the emergency brake, you would step down. And you hit click, 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 click. When you step down on the emergency brake, it popped. You heard ping. And the thing came up. And the kilos were. If, if memory serves me correctly. I, I, I found so many traps
0: in cars. That I get them confused. Amazing stuff. Seriously, I. You should do. You, do you not have like your own podcast or something? And, and don't get me wrong. I'm going to. I, you, know, you know what? I almost thought you were going to say you should write a book, and I'm like, dude,
1: yeah. I've got, I've got five books.
0: Yeah, we'll get, we'll get to the books in a second. But yeah, I was going to say like th- this. You could, you could just do so much with this like I could I could literally talk to you for hours and hours and hours and I would love that but anyway let's let's talk about your books um so you're the you're basically you're the author of a series of books that offer sort of behind the scenes look at life as a police officer and you know you obviously talk share these sorts of stories within those books but I think the, the thing that I wanted to kind of know is what actually motivated you to to start writing about them I mean obviously you had this 20-year career and then was it sort of a case of, well, I want to do something with this, or I want to, I want to share these amazing stories or, you know, was it just a, a dream of yours to just be a writer? And that was, no,
1: what... no, not at all. Um, I retired. I retired very young. I retired mm. in my early forties and then I became a police officer down in Florida and I absolutely hated it. So oh. I, under, I re-retired and um, I was bored and my friends, my friends used to tell me you got so many stories you should start writing these things down. I said, nah, I don't know. And, and then I said, you know, you know, law enforcement, again, it, it's, it's not a trusting society and I didn't want to burn any bridges with friends or family. And I didn't want to, and the two things I set out to do when I started writing these police books was I didn't want to embarrass any of my friends, get anybody into trouble, or get anyone divorced. You know, <laughs> I, I'm not sour. I, I'm not a sour grapes kind of guy. Like, there's people I despise in my police career. I'm not going to sit there and hammer them because, you know, shame on me if I'm if I'm, I'm sitting in a pool with piss and I continue to sit in it. You're out of my life. I don't got to see you no more. Don't get me wrong. There's a couple of people in my books that I give a kick in the ass to, but I, I try not to dwell because nobody likes a complainer. My mm-hmm. books are just about more of the wild stories of what was going on in the police department and how a police department works and you know, just funny stories. Like I was just telling you about, you know, some of these informants I worked with and car thieves and, you know, guys I locked up.
0: Um, in, in the beginning of that, you mentioned that you, you sort of briefly were a cop in, in Florida and you hated it. Like why, why did you hate it? Was it just because it was so different to being a cop in New York? Oh or-
1: yeah. Well think about it. So, you know, listen, the, the older we get, the, the less likely we are to change. We're, we're set in our ways. So I went from being a detective in the world's largest police department, right? Like working on all these interesting things, right? Fast forward two years later, I'm in a small town in Florida. I'm driving in circles and I'm like in an episode of Reno 911. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm chasing dirt bags under kitty hiding under kitty pools and backyards. It's like, I didn't have the patience anymore at 40 something years old, you know, a detective is one thing. Being a road cop is another. I didn't have the patience for the disputes anymore. I didn't have the patience for the drunk driving. I knew too much, you know, when you're young, you're flexible and everything's new and it's exciting. Then you get older. It's like, I know what this, you know, what's going to come out of someone's mouth before they say it, you know what I mean? And it was like, it was the same thing all over again. And I'm like, I remember, I remember the turning point was I was at this police department about eight or nine months I, and I was working at midnight and I'm in a Dunkin' Donuts because cops love coffee. And hey. I'm on my third cup of coffee at three o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? Right. Like, I'm going to shorten my life being up in the middle of the night drinking coffee for what? I'm, they're not paying me much money. The department was great. I liked the people there. They were nice to me. They actually, this department treated me a lot better than my, the New York city police department, but it was me, you know, it was like, I had changed. I was too old for this shit anymore. You know what I mean? And then when I went to tell them I wanted to leave the the guy, the chief was like, listen, can you just wait a couple of months? We'll make you a detective. I said, no. I said, because the guys won't respect me. I says, I'm here eight, nine months a year. and You're going to make me a detective. I go, there's people that have been waiting for this for years. I go, I'm done with this. I want to try something else. And I did. That, that's that's basically what motivated me. It took a while, but that's what motivated me into getting into writing. And I was really nervous about writing my first police book because I, I didn't know how the reception would be with my friends, family. You know, I mean, most of my friends are cops. You know what I mean? So, but everybody, now I get phone calls. You should have wrote about this guy. You Now everybody's a critic. Now, like I write a book and it's like. And in my books, I change the names, the dates, the locations, the ranks, because I don't want it to land on somebody. Right. But the thing is, my friends know who I'm talking about. And I get all the, <laughs> I know what you're talking about. You know what I mean? So it's, or you should, and then everybody, you should write about this guy. You should write about that guy. And I'm like, that's a funnier story to tell that I can write, you know? So, yeah, no, the reception's been good. Sales have been good. People like yourself are nice enough to put me on their platforms. You know, it, it's working out for me
0: oh congratulations it's really positive to hear i mean i mean it's the sort of thing like i think at the end of the day storytelling will always be just one of the most enjoyable sort of aspects of human life you know i mean it's it's what i pride myself on doing with this show you know is being able to share stories with others and also yeah learn and and absorb someone's stories and and just kind of like put a put a sort of a not like a magnifying glass into someone's life, but kind of like a little door into like what their life is about and what they have to share. And, and it's, it's just fascinating to me. Cause I mean, I think the biggest thing that sticks out for me when you, when you're talking about these stories and sharing it is this idea that, you know, every day is different. And like, that must just be really exhilarating to know that like, right. Yeah. I, I mean, in a way, I completely understand your decision to retire. That makes perfect sense to me. It's like, you do it as long as you can. And no, like, it's uh, my personal sort of mentality is just never retire. Like, that's just my mind, mindset. But I mean, what I mean is like, never stop working. Well, not just keep
1: going ne- forward. Right, correct. Yeah,
0: yeah. Not, not like, because some jobs you have to walk away from. You just have to because of just like physicality or as you said, like there's, there's other things involved, other things that... And it's like you know, no matter how much you might want to keep keep going, whatever you just can't. So then you transition into other things and you do other things and you keep going. But um, one thing that I did want to ask you that I found interesting is what actually prompted the decision for you to leave New York? Like, was what was that about?
1: Yeah. Well, okay. So I loved my job.
0: Don't get me wrong. I mean, right. and I
1: worked in this. I was lucky enough to work in the same office for ten years, and I had great supervisors. I had great coworkers. But things change. I mean, it's just, it's just the progression of life. So my friends started retiring. Um, my supervisors started retiring. We're moving on to different units. And before I knew it, my last year, year and a half, at 41 years old, I'm the old guy in the office. You know what I mean? Like my lieutenant was my age. He was a nice guy. Um, I, I had a younger supervisor for a while who I, I just we, we just did not work well. So I had to find another sergeant to work with and my coworkers you know they were younger different ideas different and i'm sitting around and i'm going i have nothing in common with these people anymore i went from being everybody outlives their usefulness we just do we were meant to evolve and the longer you sit around in a place yeah i'm the guy i'm the guy people come in hey vic I got this question about how we should start up this case. Hey, Vic. Yeah. I'm this wealth of information, but at the same time at 41, I got guys in their twenties. They've got, they're into video games. You know what I mean? It's like, it's just different. There's a culture war going on. And I said, you know what? The writing's on the wall and it's in crayon and shame on me. If I stay too long, you know, it's um, I I, I can have a pension in in a year, year and a half, I can do something else. Now the move to Florida was growing up, all my friends went to college and a lot of them became engineers and a lot of them got, in, got jobs down here in Florida working for engineering companies. So in my early twenties, I used to come down here and, and visit and stay for a while and go to the beach. And I was pretty acclimated to Florida. I would go a couple of times a year on vacation. I dated a couple of women that lived down here at one time or another. So I knew Florida. And, you know, it was like, I, I wanted to change. I just, I just wanted to change. And I said, you know what? If I move down to Florida, the worst thing that can happen is I won't like it and I can go back to the Bronx. But I didn't. I mean, I absolutely love it down here. The weather is nice. Um, you know, we're living our life here through COVID. I mean, I, I've had a, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky. You know, some of it is the moves I made and, and like every, all of us in life,
0: it's it's a crapshoot. It's just luck. Completely understand. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you for sharing. No um, I want to kind of ask you a, sort of a few questions just yeah. to kind of get general advice from you. What's the best advice you've ever received?
1: Oh, I've gotten... So, yeah. My dad, well, my, when I was a kid, my dad told me never get balls and stupidity confused. <laughs> 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 yeah. I don't remember what I did, but my father pulled me aside. He goes, don't get balls and stupidity confused. That's stupidity. You know, um, I, I'll never forget that. That stayed with me. Um, when you go, when you're a rookie, and I don't know how it is now. I'm talking in my day. God, I feel so old. When you go, when, when a rookie cop, when I was young, when you showed up at a police station, yeah, you went through the police academy. Yeah, you're wearing a blue uniform. Yeah, you got a gun. The old timers wouldn't talk to you. It was almost like the Amish when you're shunned. Like the old timers, if you were in a car with an old timer, he would tell you, don't touch that radio. I'm driving. And you just sat there and you kept your mouth. So the, the advice I learned early was keep your mouth shut and your ears open. And you just looked around and you watched and it's like, yeah, this guy's an old scumbag or this guy came off as a scumbag, but actually he's a nice guy. He got burned once. That's why he's tough to get to know. So yeah, you learn, you definitely learn like at an NYPD precinct, different personality types. And then after a while, if they see that you're okay and you're not a know-it-all or you don't have a big mouth or you're not a liability, then they'll start warming up to you. And then you might get invited to a club meeting after work or for a beer after work. And then they start feeling you out. It's In a lot of ways, the mafia and the NYPD are the same, you know, in the mafia, they say you're only as good as your last dollar in the NYPD. They say you're only as good as your last collar, which is your arrest. In the mafia, you know, it's all about your reputation. Same thing with the police department. You know, it's, if you're a coward, no one's going to want to work with you. They laugh at you. Um, you know, if you're running around telling the supervisor, oh, this one took an extra 15 minutes on his hour, you, you know, you're, you're ostracized. So there's a lot of similarities. Like I said, like we used to watch, sit around and critique the Sopranos. There's a lot of similarities. How do you
0: deal with people like that? Like, because, okay, I, I get that general workplaces have these people. I've unfortunately had to deal with them myself. But in, in that kind of line of work, I mean... How, how do you handle people like that? With I mean, I know you said that you ostracize them and stuff like that, but like just working day to day with people like that must have just been insane. Well, you didn't.
1: Uh, okay, so in every okay, so let, let's take let's get away from the detectives. Let's let's talk about like what it's like to work in a New York City police precinct. So any NYPD precinct police station. There's 77 police stations in the city of New York. Each police station has between 100 and 400 cops. Even like the one in Midtown might even have more, right? So you're dealing with a lot of personalities. And you have three shifts, right? And then you have specialized units per precinct. So one one of the most despised, again, this is in my time, in any NYPD precinct are the summons guys. Their job is just to write tickets. Be it parking tickets, moving tickets, that's their job. These people were despised in my day. Because they tend to be very antisocial, nobody really wants to work with them. Um, they're odd. It's the guy that never had a pretty girlfriend or had, you know, didn't really react well with women. The the kid that used to get picked on in school. Somehow they get into the police department, and th- their power is that pen, right. and they're going to write people tickets. We we had guys, you know writing sanitation workers in the garbage truck for, for, you know, for speeding or pulling over a city bus that's loaded with commuters, that he, he's sitting there writing the guy a ticket. Or, you know, you get phone calls. You, you get a phone call from a cop in another precinct. Do you know this guy? Yeah, what did he do now? He wrote my brother-in-law a ticket. Did, 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 he, did, did he tell him that, that he knew? Yeah, he gave him my phone number and he still gave him a ticket. So you go to the guy and go, dude, what happened? Oh, I don't know. So like you're asking how that got handled. Oh God, guys like that, you would come into work and you would see that guy's locker upside down in the shower with the water running into it. Or there was one guy, he was short that used to pull that shit. And he always used to put his boots on top of his locker. He was like five foot three. The guy's crazy glued his boots on top of his locker so you're watching this little fuck with his arms up there trying to pull his boots off the locker. And then he had to get a knife and cut the heel to get his boot off. And then he walked funny for a while until he got a new set of boots. Oh, the practical jokes that would go on. And like, you know, some of it was really mean-spirited towards guys that, you know, weren't pulling their weight or, were, you know, just you, abusing their privilege, giving out summonses.
0: How did you deal with... Like corruption and, and 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 police officers that you know because inevitably they were going to be police officers oh, yeah, that sure. corrupt and and give like accept bribes and stuff like that. Like how Absolutely. do you, how do you deal with that and also like how do you avoid that yourself as well? Because I imagine okay. it must be tempting at times.
1: Okay, so I'll say this about the New York City Police Department: they make no when from the second you're in the police academy, they tell you if you're corrupt, if you're taking if you're taking money if you're stealing, if you're doing something out of line, we're going to find you and we're going to prosecute you to the fullest extent of the law. When I was in the police academy, they showed countless videos of cops that got fired or threw their careers away or got involved with drugs. They had We, we would get speeches from the internal affairs division. We would get speeches from, they would bring prosecutors down from different boroughs that were tasked to, to, to prosecute police corruption. So, I'll give them credit with that. Like they're telling you, listen, you, you want to fuck around. We're going to find out we're going to, we're going to nail your balls to the wall, and rightfully so. Now, with a police department with thirty-five to 40,000 people, you're going to get a couple of bad apples from time to time. Some are sociopaths that got past all the psychological, said all the right things, and they're just laying in wait, waiting for the perfect opportunity or scam to pull off. Then you got other guys that I don't think started off bad and then got into a jam with a divorce, bankruptcy. I don't know. They got bitter. They got passed over for something and they just, they're going to take it out on the world and they start doing that. So yeah, we've had, I mean, we, we've we had some major police corruption issues. I knew a couple of guys that went bad. It was sad. I mean, they threw away their lives, but, um, you know, uh, I'll I'll tell you what, like as a detective, I saw more of it in a precinct from time to time. Someone would fail a drug test or someone would go bad. And you're like, shit, did you you hear about so-and-so? As a detective, when we started going up on wiretaps, then all of a sudden, you know, like one case, that, that case I was telling you about with the stolen motorcycles and the cars going to China, there were two cops in a precinct in the Bronx that were hanging out with these car thieves. And what they would do is the car thieves would steal parts and and stuff for their motorcycles and give it to these two cops. But now there's a quid pro quo. What these two cops would do is when the thieves saw a car or motorcycle they wanted to steal, they'd meet up with these guys and give them the license plate number. And these two cops would run the plate in their computer terminal and tell them, yeah, this guy lives over here. And then the thieves would know where to steal the car, you, you know what I mean? so they were giving them they were giving them inside information where to steal a car where you know so I mean they got fired. Um, one of the last cases I was working on there was a cop in Queens. he was bad like uh, just, just as I retired like just before I retired, we didn't take the case down yet. He, like I retired, but the case was still going. It was a young cop from Queens, and we he was involved he delivered a stuff he the cop delivered a couple of stolen cars to a chop shop and we had him on, we had him on a wiretap. Him and his friend hijacked a truck full of marijuana in Ohio. Don't ask me how he got out to Ohio and they brought like a truck full of bales of marijuana back to Queens somewhere and they distributed it. And he was also involved in, he had a friend that was a realtor out in Long Island, like where millionaires live. And what the realtor would do is when these people were showing their home, I mean, you're talking about people that aren't even in these houses half the time, but their houses are loaded with paintings and, you know, pieces of art. So through the realtor, this guy and another guy would go and do burglaries in these houses because the realtor had been through the house before and knew that this guy had a Picasso and this guy had a Rembrandt. So this guy, I mean, he he, I'm sure he did jail time because he was into some major shit.
0: Yeah, it must be very difficult, especially what you laid out there as far as like people going through difficult sort of personal things. And then obviously that translates into them, make, them making those sort of poor choices. I mean, because it's like, a what do I do? Uh, how do I feed my family kind of thing? And it's like, sometimes you can understand that doesn't make it right, but you can at least understand where, it, why. I, they I
1: going can't I can understand that because you get okay. a second job. You know what I mean? It's, um, or, right. or you go to your family for help. You know, it's like, it's like doubling down on a bad decision. All right, you've gotten yourself in shit, but why put the other one in? You, you know what I mean? You got one foot in, you know what I mean? And you might go to jail.
0: Well, I mean, clearly that's not a big enough deterrent. I mean, I don't know. Yes, yeah, you're right. But that's a whole other conversation right there. <laughs> um, what's the biggest life lesson that you've learned so far?
1: When I retired from the police up in New York, you know, I still thought I was invincible. And then once I became a cop in Florida, a year or two later, I had been out of it. You know, I wasn't going, I wasn't, you know, rocking and rolling every day. And then in the small police department in Florida, I'm all by myself. And I don't know the lay of the land. Like you could blindfold me in the Bronx and I'm going to find my way. I'm in Florida, North, southeast, and West doesn't, my navigation system isn't there yet. Um, I'm pulling over cars by myself. I've been out of it a year. I started to realize I was vulnerable. I started to realize something really bad could happen. Whereas up there, I never get, even to the day I retired, I never thought something would happen to me. And down in Florida, after being out of it for a year and then getting back into it, and then there being a learning curve, I suddenly started feeling vulnerable. Like, you know what? I could get hurt really bad. And that definitely factored in my decision. In addition to just not enjoying it, I said, you know, and on top of this, it's dangerous. You know, what I'm, you know, what did I do the last 20 years for to get killed in 15 minutes up here?
0: So it's like the the lesson, I suppose, is to kind of know when to, to, to step away, I guess. Yeah, to, definitely. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you very much for sharing. I appreciate that. Um, as we draw to a close for today do you have any upcoming projects or final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners
1: yeah in addition to these four nypd books i'm writing a book right now which should be out this spring it's called confessions of a catholic high school graduate i was a i was a wild kid um catholic high school which i didn't want to attend was probably the best thing that ever happened to me um i'm not overly religious but the structure kept me in line and then the police department took it the next way i don't know where i would be without either of those institutions there's a lot of wild stories in that book the book opens up with me getting chased out of a confessional by a priest that really did happen
0: oh my god and
1: and, uh i was a wild kid you know after like the third trivial sin and he kept yelling at me i says well father you don't want me to be in here i don't want to be in here can we just call it a day (laughs) (laughs) and he lost his mind He lost his mind, get out of this booth, get out of this church. So it's a long story because it was a couple of days before I was supposed to make my confirmation and confession was from five to seven, I think. And I was the last one there. So there was no one else in the church and my father was waiting outside. And if my father would have seen me running out of a church my father would have crucified me. So what I did was on my way running out of the church I shut the lights off and I left the priest in the dark church. So I ran out to the car. My father's like, "What are you running out of the church for?" I'm like, "Ah, oh, yeah. yeah. What, do you, what do you say as a kid? You just give him some bullshit story." And kids have the memory of a fly. My parents didn't go to mass. I never saw this priest before. I go, "He's this is Saturday morning. while I'm sitting in a classroom, with my little suit and tie, getting ready to make my confirmation." The priest walks into the room like a lineup, and he goes, "I'd like to have a word with that young man." Pulled me out of the room, threw me in a classroom, and Beat the living shit out of me. So nice. then the funny thing is, I make my confirmation. I'm in front, I'm I'm in front of the church with my family and we're taking photos. And my father thought I was in a fight because like my shirt goes, What are you screwing around with your friends? I go, oh, yeah, yeah. The priest comes walking by and he goes, What a fine young man. And I'm saying to myself, this son of a bitch, he should, he didn't want to tell my father. This was personal. Like he wanted, he wanted the satisfaction of kicking my ass himself because i thought he was going to tell my father and he's just like what a fine young man he's like squeezing my cheek and i'm like oh shit but it's going to be a good book
0: wow i can't, can't wait to to see it um, <laughs> i just want to say a massive thank you um for sharing all of your wonderful stories and and for letting us learn a little bit more about you it's been uh, it's been a wild ride <laughs>
1: yeah thank you and like all my books are available on amazon
0: um, just
1: look up, uh, Vic Ferrari, like the car, Vic Ferrari. And, uh, all my books are $10. They're available in the UK. Um, and I have them on Kindle Unlimited and, and Kindle.
0: Excellent. Um, wonderful. As, as, as I said before, thank you so much, Vic. And to the listeners of the Christian Reed podcast, be safe, be well, and I'll see you in the next one.